many empowered females did we have at Marvel Comics at the time? Well, this is why I don't like what happened to Maddie Pryor, Annie. Yes. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is legendary Marvel editor and writer Anne Nascenti. Annie Nascenti, if you're nasty, she is here with me today to talk about her work with the X-Men If you are not that familiar because you're not an 80s X-Men head like myself, the listeners, uh, Annie, will know that my dad is a collector. So I was born in the late 80s, but I grew up reading those stories because he had them all. And that was the stuff I really loved. So the majority of it was honestly stuff you edited. (laughs) So for those not aware... Anasenti is known for writing that's very impressive, creating the characters of Longshot, Spiral, and Mojo, who we're here to talk about today in the Longshot miniseries with Art Adams, also doing a really critically acclaimed and absolutely fabulous run on Daredevil after Frank Miller. If you are a Daredevil fan in the modern age who has not gone back and read that, it is well worth reading. It includes the introduction of one of Annie's other really famous characters, Typhoid Mary who becomes a pretty central antagonist and also sort of semi-protagonist and is a mutant character. So we'll talk a little bit about her too. But outside of her work as a writer, Annie was also the X-Men editor for years, starting with Uncanny X-Men 183, which is that incredible bar fight issue with Colossus and Wolverine and Juggernaut and all of that stuff, all the way through Uncanny X-Men 232, which is one of those great outback issues shortly before the Inferno. In addition to that, she also, as I've mentioned on this podcast, wrote several of the classic X-Men backup stories that helped fill in the backstories of those characters, notably the Emma Frost backup that we've talked about, and a bunch of intriguing love triangle backups that are fun to go back and look at now. In addition to work at DC and other companies, more recently, she has put out some original creator-owned work with Karen Berger's new imprint, Berger Books, at Dark Horse, including Ruby Falls with Flavia Biondi, and most recently, The Seeds with David Aha, which is a beautiful, very short graphic novel. It's four issues that's now collected in trade, and uh, I wholeheartedly recommend it. I just held up my own copy so that Annie could see that I have it, because I'm a big fan. So with that long intro out of the way, and I'm sure I forgot a million things that I wanted to say, Annie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. I'm glad to hear it. It is a moment where it feels like we're all kind of coming out from the the weirdness of the last year, finally, at least starting to. It's really great to have you on. I would love to start by sort of talking about your road to Marvel Comics and to the X-Men office where you were such a steward of these characters for so many years. I've told that story so often that I don't even know if it's true or not. (laughs) But, you know, and it's also, I want to preface it by saying that was 35 some years. Right, of course. So I don't, I mean, I I went up to Marvel Comics in 
1981, I think it was, right out of college. I was very young. And I they had a kind of mentor system there where you would work under other editors. They would teach you. And then you would become an assistant editor and move up to editor. And you were very encouraged to write or draw. I did paste up mechanical coloring, writing. I did all kinds of stuff as I learned the craft. So I don't really know what it's like at Marvel today, but back then it was it was an incredibly creative place where you learned by osmosis. Mm-hmm. And I was taught by first Jim Shooter, then Mark Grunewald, then Denny O'Neill, Ralph Macchio, Larry Hama, you know, on and on, Archie Goodwin. It was like all these legends that I didn't even know were legends, you know, because I was so young. Yeah. Maurice Severin. Incredible. So you often got to do stories with like me and Marie Severin used to joke a lot and she was an incredibly intimidating powerhouse. And we got to do a comic together, Toxic Avenger. And Mm -hmm. I kind of bonded with Steve Ditko over different political discussions. And we did a issue of Daredevil together. And it didn't, it wasn't like a bunch of lumbering legends. It was just people making comics because that was 1981. I think that's 40 years ago. So it wasn't, it wasn't like anyone knew they were a legend. Steve Ditko, of course, yes. <laughs> legend and um, John Ramita Sr. was there. And, you know, so there were people that were turning into legends at the moment. Mm-hmm. But that long ago, uh, there were still comics were still printed on really cheap paper. And it was, um, you know, the coloring wasn't that good. The printing wasn't that good. They were disposable. They were something that you read, passed to a friend, threw in the garbage. It was, you know, 40 years ago before it became a collector's universe. Right. I can only imagine that the political discussions between you and Steve Ditko must have been (laughs) hilarious because I feel like your politics are very different from his. You know, we got along great. And I think it was Ralph Macchio, for whatever reason, Steve felt very comfortable in Ralph's office. So he would sit in Ralph's office. And if Ralph was out to lunch, he would come into my office. And, you know, he only went places he was comfortable, especially if you didn't talk to him about comics. If you talk to him about something political, be it, you know, he, he was an, he had a certain, his own brand of anarchy that <laughs> he was interested in. He was a, strangely, I kind of vaguely remember he was into Ayn Rand and he was into various kinds of, uh, it was all fascinating. I mean, I'm not somebody who's going to diss you for wherever you've ended up in the universe, whatever you're lexicon and mythology is so we used to have great talks you know (laughs) yeah no I'm sure it's just it's just interesting part of what you did early on was the final issues of the Jessica Drew Spider-Woman comic and I believe you were the first woman to write an ongoing female character even if it was for a short time I mean, I guess that would be a question for the historians. For a historian, right. I have no idea. I have no idea. I know that when I was working on um, the Marvel Museum, I worked on a a touring exhibition that's the 80 years of Marvel history. And I discovered Linda Feit wrote Hellcat 
or Patsy Walker or something. She was married to Herb Trimp. And I remember like me and the professors that worked on the show realized that she was the very first female to write a superhero for yeah. Marvel. So there, there are all these little things just when you think, you know, you're safe saying, oh, were you right? Of course, woman? you know, somebody will say, no, wait, you know, before Annie did Spider-Woman, there was somebody. No, you're right. Linda fight did. Um, it was the cat, I think, Tigra before she was Tigra, who had the Patsy Walker costume is what yeah, I, I'm I trying to. I'm, it's a long it's a it's not. Yeah, that, yeah I don't really but, remember. But I saw Linda um, a couple of years ago and I said, you know, we've figured out that you were the first. And she was very thrilled to hear that. You know, uh, <laughs> the uh, so, so yeah, it's um, first or first. I have this. Um, I got. I've been getting these uh, Twitter messages also that I somehow created the very first trans character for Marvel. You did with Jesse Drake. With Jesse Drake, and I'm kind of like, but I was kind of called out about it because people were like. It was great that you had a trans character and that the trans character was talking about how, you know, she was trapped right. in a boy's body. But when that was discovered, Typhoid was really angry for being lied to. Mm -hmm. That was a insensitive reaction on Typhoid's part. <laughs> you know, and I'm kind of like, <laughs> well, Typhoid was quite oblivious to everything but her own sexuality. So I couldn't really see her being that sensitive, but I did write the story. So how sensitive was I? So I think that um, it's really good to look back and at your early stories and go, if only I could rewrite that and add a few pages to Jesse Drake's scene mm -hmm. and have her be treated with more sensitivity by typhoid and have typhoid perhaps even figure out how wrong she was and apologize and take her yeah. off her arm because she was a champion of females, especially as Bloody Mary. She was a champion of all females to the point of being kind of a who needs men, you know, personality so absolutely you really should have taken jesse under her wing she kind of does at the end of the story they go in for therapy together and it's sort of a nice moment but the initial shock you know basically she sees how upset she's made jesse and she feels guilty and so even though she doesn't understand what's going on with jesse she's like all right let's do something let's get help or something well because the um I don't remember these stories very well. I, kind of, <laughs> I remember that Jesse Drake was based on, I mean, in the 1980s, New York City, we had the Pyramid Club. So there was yeah. a lot of, a lot. my friends were doing drag acts and I had trans friends and I had, I was kind of in that milieu. So mm -hmm. to me, it was like, oh yeah, let me put, let me put you in a comic. You know, it was very casual. But um, I don't, I, I have actually don't have copies of those issues. I had to go to eBay and find them so I can read them because I'm doing a podcast with. With Danny Kinney, who wrote that article. Yeah, exactly. What I took away from that piece, and Danny listens to this podcast, so hi, Danny. Hi, Danny. <laughs> I thought it was a great piece, and she was actually absolutely right on. And you know, and it's uh, there. I didn't, and so that therefore, because I am happy 
to always look back on mistakes I've made in my, I'm happy to do a uh, podcast if it helps anybody. I think that's great because I think a lot of people are, a lot of people get defensive about things like that in their work. And what I took away from that piece was the way that Danny and her editor, Nola Fowett, women writing about comics, approached it was sort of, you know, in this modern context, this is not ideal, but also, wow, I can't believe someone tried to do this in 1994 and was so sympathetic to Jesse's plight and all of that. Because if you look at other media of the time, it's certainly a lot less sympathetic to trans people than that story is. It's that's a in the eighties, in my little circle of people in the East village, you know, at the pyramid club going to, you know, all kinds of drag acts, it was totally accepted. It wasn't like, it almost has gotten worse, maybe. Or I was in a bubble. I think it's become a culture war thing the way that the feminist movement was, the way that yeah. gay rights were. It's now conservatives have lost a lot of battles and now they've decided here's an even smaller minority that's even more marginalized that we can use yeah. as a reason to panic people and a way to, you know, it's obviously terrible. There's a lot of terrible laws that the Republicans are trying to pass nationwide in places like Arkansas and North Carolina. So, you know, I think that the story is relevant now. And I'm glad to hear that you and Danny are going to have a conversation about it because I'm not obviously super equipped to to dig into that story, but I would love (laughs) to hear that conversation. Neither am I. But I love the fact that you're that you're willing to have dialogue about it. I think that's really cool. And I would love to see that character come back. I would love to see a trans woman get an opportunity to write. I mean, it's a it's a really bold new era for the mutants in the comics right now. And it would be nice to see Jesse Drake thriving as an adult now. Yeah, I think that would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it needs a, you know, a strong editor at Marvel who is given the ability to bring in writers to tell these stories you know yeah i I am sort of shocked that it hasn't happened yet and i just really shocked by that yeah part of why i love the 80s stuff so much that claremont and simonson x-men and new mutants excalibur you edited the sword is drawn i love Mm -hmm. excalibur I was drawn to that in a way I wasn't drawn to the 90s material that was coming out when I was a kid because I knew I was gay. I knew from an early age. And there was a lot of stuff in Chris M. Weezy's work and in your work that spoke to something. And even though it wasn't said on the page, it felt very present. Uh, You're absolutely right. There was a lot of subtext. And that has a lot to do with... Wheezy and Chris being, you know, very embraceive, kind people. I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, all that subtext in Chris's work, it, it's, it was on purpose. Of course. And it was to some degree uh, subliminal and unintentional. Like it was just, it was just something that felt normal and natural to embrace. If you're going to embrace mute, the whole concept of a mutant as including outsiders it has to be inclusive it has to be completely inclusive and i think that was just happening naturally in chris's work yeah i've said on this show that when you didn't have gay writers or other minority writers working on the books the thing that became important was having people who didn't treat characters or situations or subtext like that as though it was alien, people who seemed to be in the world. And I'm not surprised at all to hear that 
you were down at the pyramid. Like that's what I've assumed actually on the show. I was like, yeah. I'm pretty confident having read any of Annie Nascenti's work that she knew plenty of gay people, knew the nightlife, uh, knew Manhattan. My um, my boyfriend at the time, Armand, was, uh, was an artist and he had a gallery in the East Village and we had a huge loft and we used to have parties where, you know, a lot of our friends were gay. We had, and John Kelly was a very famous kind of uh, performance artist Mm-hmm. who did a drag act called Dagmar Onassis that was yes. just, dr- it was brilliant. And he was one of our friends. He was, his par- his partner was Huck Schneider. And we used to have parties and dinners. And then sadly, of course, AIDS came and right. everything became dark and subdued and scary, you know, and we lost a lot of our friends. But um, that that was the era when we were all out to CBGB's performance art. It was it was a very vibrant uh, time in Manhattan. Uh, the Inferno Omnibus just came out, which collects Inferno and also all of the crossovers in one volume for the first time. And I was rereading your Daredevil stories from it because it had been a while since I had read them. I love Inferno. I read it when I was 12, which was way too young to read Inferno. But... <laughs> The joke on this podcast is that I'm Madeline Pryor's defense attorney. I'm always explaining to people why it's not her fault. They tricked her in a dream, this, that. I'm a big advocate for that character because I was reading it all in sort of a a run because my dad had the back issues and I had the trade paperbacks. And so I read her from her first appearance, all the romance with Scott the whole way through. And I was so upset. I imprinted on that as a kid. What I was struck by reading those Daredevil issues now I'm from New York. I grew up in Westchester, actually, where the X-Men are. But I was born in the city and we lived in the city until I was little. And I moved back to the city as an adult. So when Inferno, when these issues are coming out, I'm one year old, which I'm sorry to say, because I always hate to tell people like, you know, you were writing this incredible work and I was a baby. It's happening to me now. I have guests who come on and they're like, oh, I love that comic. It came out when I was like six. Well, you know, it's weird because I've always had this underlying sense of guilt that You know, I was writing all those stories really fast. I was really young. I was throwing everything into them. And then I'll have people come up to me at conventions to to bring my work up to sign it. And they'll literally tell me that I traumatized them, that, you know, (laughs) I mean, that, that they, you know, that the work was insane and they felt insane from it. You know, I mean, it's like there's so many, well, Mojo especially. Yeah, we'll get to that. You know, when I wrote all the animal rights stories, I'll have kids come up. I read that as a kid and I never ate meat again. Or I wrote a story about alcoholism and somebody will say, my family read it together because my father's an alcoholic. And you realize the that there's this huge impact that is quite different from how I want to say fast and casual were yeah. just turning our brains inside out, throwing stories out there. You had to do one a month. It's like making a movie a month. And sometimes, you know, I'd be editing eight X-Men books and writing Daredevil in a few in the miniseries. And it's a lot of stories to be telling. Yeah. And you had to work at that pace because you didn't really, the comics didn't really make much money back then. I mean, they still don't for the most part, but, (laughs) you know, it was, um, the pace was just so furious that I often wish that I could go back and do every single story with more sensitivity. Like, 
but there was also no internet. There was no Google. It's not like you could just Google, oh, I want an oral history of this particular kind of individual. And, you know, I tried as much as I could. I um, interviewed as many people as I could. I would say that Typhoid Mary for the time was a pretty nuanced depiction of mental illness. Mm -hmm. I mean, she obviously takes it to a superheroic, supervillainous extreme. Like (laughs) it's dissociative identity disorder taken to a science fiction level where she sort of physically transforms a little bit. But I remember thinking as a kid that she was a character who had, despite her own inability to understand her motivations, sort of understandable motivation, she felt like a human being. And that's, again, like for stories in the late 80s, early 90s, it's not something that's that commonplace to come by, particularly when you couldn't just Google it and read all the medical journals. Yes. Yeah. And, and, I, and I did often try to interview as many people as I could when I was writing a story about something, you know, like, for instance, factory farming, I interviewed farmers, you know, right. I mean, I did, I would always try to do my due diligence and do a certain amount of journalistic But I have like certain like I ended up teaching film in Haiti for years. And, you know, I dread reading the issue of Daredevil where I had a voodoo villain. Mm. Like, I'm sure that is the story that's going to make me cringe the most because I have gone on to really have so many friends in Haiti, have gone to so many voodoo rituals. I understand the religion of it. Yeah. Yeah, And the and the profound transformation nature that is really important to the Haitian culture. And, you know, I kind of vaguely remember this voodoo story that I wrote early on in Daredevil. And, you know, I really don't want to read it because I'm sure it is horrifying. I'm sure it's like, you know, completely insensitive, but it's sort of like, you say, okay, I want to have a, a black character and I want it to be about voodoo and you put it in there, but you can't, you, you can only write from what you know and where you are in that life. And as a, I think I was probably 21 years old, as a 21 year old, you know, hetero white female from New Jersey who had not yet been right. to Haiti, you know? <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah. And I mean, you've done a lot of journalistic work, too. So I know that yeah. that's important to you. And that, that's what The Seeds is about when yeah. we get to that later. Yeah. And I think that that desire to present something true, mm-hmm. even when you don't have the experience and yeah. so you go out and look for it, I think that that it comes through in your work. What I was going to say about the Daredevil Inferno issues, and you wrote those when you were my age now, which mm-hmm. I think of myself as very grown up. I'm in my early 30s, but, you know, it's very young, honestly, to be writing these things that now I'm reading in a hardcover 30 years later. I wasn't even, I wasn't in my 30s. I was in my 20s. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, the the 80s were basically my 20s, and that's when I did most of my work. So maybe my early 30s, if the works were came. Yeah, I think this was like 1989. Yes, I would not have been out of my 20s yet. Wow. (laughs) What I was struck by was how real it made New York and how much it felt like a real vibrant city, which I don't think is always true in Marvel Comics, even though 
they're almost all set in New York City. It doesn't always have the same like hustle and bustle feel of Manhattan. And in Inferno, where Manhattan has come alive and is attacking people, inanimate objects mm-hmm. are attacking people. Daredevil gets attacked by a vacuum and by a dentist vacuum, chair and yeah. by But in these Daredevil stories, you bring that metaphor out more strongly, I think, than the X-Men story necessarily does. In the X-Men story, it's very much Ilyana accidentally let these demons out. (laughs) Madeline's doing bad stuff with the demons because she sold her soul by mistake. In the Daredevil story, where we don't see any of that because it's about what's going on in the streets, the feeling also is that the wealth inequality in New York, which of course now is astronomically worse than it was in 1989, has poisoned the city in this sort of subtle way over time as though it was like a powder keg that just needed the inferno to spark and it was always there it's not just something that came from hell it's the poor being exploited it's all of these machines being used every day by people who don't care about their neighbors it, it feels very there's a lot more social commentary in it that i found well, very i also interesting. think that each story is a product of a different mind and you know and also the nature of daredevil he's a street hero mm-hmm. so his mise-en-scene is going to be closer to the mise-en-scene of you know luke cage up in uh, harlem or south bronx and daredevils in hell's kitchen very different feeling than the x-men in westchester westchester right. was a very rich area as you know if you grew up there it yes it still is <laughs> yeah so the and also there the x-men aren't street heroes you know but right maybe wolverine a little bit maybe a little bit in the new mutants when they first you know started but it's they're not they were they were privileged they were growing up in a rich mansion you know yeah. they were very protected they were not street heroes so they were intergalactic heroes. They were time and space bending, you know, heroes. But yeah. so the mise-en-scene of the X-Men was accurate to what you would want in it from an X-Men story. Oh, of course. I wasn't criticizing the X-Men stories. I just think it's different than yeah. it feels so politically grounded in the Daredevil yeah. stuff. I like that this omnibus is now collecting all of the tie-ins with the X-Men story. You read through the X-Men story first, through X-Men X-Factor, New Mutants, and then... It shows you, and here's what everybody else was up to. And Daredevil is not even in most of it because he's unconscious. It's Karen Page wandering through the streets like, what the hell is going on here? And she doesn't even have powers. You also wrote a classic X-Men backup. It just reminded me of when you were talking about how the X-Men aren't street hero characters, where Storm is walking around in Manhattan. She's, of course, the most powerful and flying above. She has... A duality there, right? Because she's the one who's racially discriminated against of the team, but she mm-hmm. also is this sort of celestial being. And there's this creepy guy on the street who's bothering her, and she sort of blows him off. And it turns out he's a mutant who wanted help. And then he tracks her all the way to Westchester and attacks them at the mansion. Wolverine's all like, oh my God, this crazy guy. And Storm is like, you know what? This is the man who tried to talk to me on the street and I thought he was a creep and I blew him off. And that's my fault. Like, I think maybe sometimes we're not connecting with everyday people. Is that a uh, Jim Lee's Jim Lee story? It is. It's Jim Lee's only classic, I think, yeah. backup. But there might be others. I think the funny thing, for one thing, yeah, I cannot talk about stories unless I reread them because they're too old. <laughs> so I don't really remember that story. But the 
I was doing, um, there was a spotlight on me at WonderCon and I was being interviewed by Jim Lee and we're up on stage and he's asking me about my career. And then he said, well, you know, there was that great time that we worked together. And I said, Jim, we never worked together. Oh no. And he said, yeah, we worked together. And I said, no, we didn't. I don't remember ever working with you. And then he pulls out of a bag. He pulls that story out. And I was like, oh, dang, you know, we did work together. And then I said, wait a minute, you probably forgot that story too and had some assistant dig it out for you. You know, and he went, you he went, you're right, you know. <laughs> he was basically like pranking me by pretending that it meant so something so much to him. Yeah, and when actually he didn't remember the story either. You know? It was a twelve-page backup in a yeah. uh, in a reprint book. It's not the most those. I mean, talk about things you have to get out quickly. I would imagine. Well, and also he uh, he Jim signed signed the copy he found over to me, and then later in my hotel room, I read it and I thought, you know, this isn't a bad story. It's kind oh, it's cool. pretty good. You know? Storm has like a Sophie's Choice moment where the guy <laughs> tries to make her choose whether to kill Wolverine or Colossus. Yeah, exactly. She picks Wolverine because she's like, he can probably take the hit. Yeah. And then at the end, she's like, you understand why I did that, right? And he's like. Yeah, but clearly but, he's pretty pissed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, but <laughs> and she feels really bad. But like you know, and Colossus is just brain empty, just like yeah. wow, that was weird, you know. But Storm and Wolverine are having this very tense moment. I love those classic X Men backups. I think it's a clever idea. I wish that modern comics had more things well, like yeah, that backup stories. They, they serve a purpose because you know the 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 classic backup stories were John Bolton mostly done by John Bolton mm -hmm. and John and I just developed a friendship from doing my first graphic novel someplace strange. Um, we just realized that we were both bent in similar ways. We both had a kind of surrealist, you know, strange surrealist minds. And so we would jam on these stories and it was always about it, it's when you interview a writer about their stories, it, is easy to forget that there was another mind involved, the mind of the artist. And all those, all the stories I've done have been um, equally out of the minds of the writers I work, I mean, the artists I work with. So um, those stories were very, very much me writing for John Bolton for the most part. That makes sense because he has sort of a an almost Baroque kind of very detailed style. The figures are very human and the stories then growing out of that become these very human stories. I, I mentioned my favorite one that you did, which is the one where Emma Frost is explaining to this waitress who feels demeaned at the Hellfire Club. Oh, well, I actually am powerful in this lingerie. Every time a man looks at me, it gives me power. This, that, you know, I would never let them touch me. You're debased because you allow yourself to be. And then saunters off to play chess telepathically with Mastermind. And the waitress is just watching them. She's like, I need to quit this job right now. Right now. This woman what a bitch. is crazy, right? Like yeah. she has fully bought her own hype and thinks that's true. And that's yeah. crazy. And I need to get out of yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, her, her superpower is almost to be an uber bitch. Yeah, she's a favorite of mine, and I, I no, think I that always, story... I always loved her. I loved her. And, you know, Chris, you know, Chris loved her, too, because of some of the things that we're talking about. 
is that you could do some cross-dressing trans kind of sensibility at the Hellfire Club. Yes. You know, and that was like always, again, subtext and stuff that Chris wanted to explore came out of his brain, not that consciously, I don't think, because the, a lot of the best work of Chris's he was working so fast and furious. He was writing at some points two issues a month or three or four. Yeah, or point, yeah. You know, it's like and and because he has an operatic mind, he has a. Yes. I mean, him and um, Walt Simonson share that kind of, you know, wonderful ability to do cosmic opera, like Jim Starlin had. There are certain writers, Kirby, yeah, yes, like those that, people who can take you to space. They can take you to other realms. Cockrum, when he drew all of that early yeah. stuff too, the Shi'ar stuff, it's all gorgeous to look at. And I, I was never, I was always more of a street, street journalist, mm -hmm. documentarian, street person. So the stories were very, it gets back to your point about Inferno. The stories were very different because there were different people making them. So, yeah, that's what I think is interesting about it, about reading it. Because again, I talk about Madeline Pryor a lot on this podcast. I've read Inferno <laughs> about a billion times. I was just struck by how, the, how different the tone was and how well it complemented the more operatic is a great word for it story that Chris and Wheezy were telling in X-Men and X-Factor. Well, I mean, I think that it was because you know, Chris and Wheezy can speak to this better than me because I barely remember it. But, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we had to punish Phoenix when she killed the planet full of broccoli people. Right. That And she couldn't come back. And so, but Chris missed her. And so that's really who Maddie Pryor was, was, was like Chris missing Jean Grey and figuring out a way to have her in the stories. And honestly... Sometimes the metaphysical shenanigans about reincarnation and other, you know, dimensions and alternate realities and all that, you want to go, you want to skip over it very delicate, very, in a very breezy manner. And so it is in hindsight that a lot of these stories seem so damn confusing, you know, and are so difficult yeah. to unravel. <laughs> Because at the time, we were just throwing them out there without really figuring out the metaphysical underpinnings of every single thing we were doing, you know? Yeah, and I've talked about how Chris often would do things like that with characters where, you know, Moira McTaggart's a great example. She's introduced as the housekeeper, and then yeah. 10 issues later, oh, by the way, she's a Nobel Prize winning scientist. Yes. You just didn't know that. <laughs> and that's because it occurred to him, and it was a cool yes, thing to put in exactly. the story. Maddie is like that, and it's a testament to Chris's brain that I love that I just call them Chris and Weezy. I've never met these people. I met Chris Claremont <laughs> once at New York Comic Con, but they're like my friends, and I just, in my head, we're first name basis. Well, you know, Chris, Weezy, Walt, you're talking about some of the nicest humans in the business. I mean, they're just so, so kind and so easy to talk to. And, uh, you know, Chris, Chris, basically, he just he just had so many ideas. Your job as an editor was just to, you know, say, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. And then man, maybe we better not do that. That's exactly what I was just going to ask about. Yeah. So what was that experience like? I mean, you were, like you said, very young. I mean, they were also pretty young at the time, but yeah. you were coordinating editorially these gigantic stories and as any claremont fan knows his stories become very sprawling very yeah. quickly <laughs> yeah it was sort of impossible to rein them in and honestly i didn't really want to rein them in i kind of loved that they were 
you know, I mean, it's not, again, it's not like we had any consciousness of it at the time, but in hindsight, it made for a lot of fun future thing of people trying to unravel all this chaos, Mm -hmm. you know, because we certainly couldn't, and we couldn't at the time, but really it's just Chris was insanely creative and Wheezy had, Louise Jones had pretty much taught me how, this is how you edit Chris. You take him to lunch, you let him talk, you scribble notes, you say yes, no, yes, no. You remind him of the characters that are getting boring because Chris has no interest really in Cyclops or Colossus. You remind him that they're getting even more boring and that we we pretty much should do something with some of the male characters. And, you know, I just sort of wheezy trained me and Chris was, he's very easy to work with. And uh, it's, uh, you're just kind of the in-betweener gatekeeper as an editor. There's of course that famous story about you taking him to dinner because you knew the shooter was going to tell him about X Factor and about Jean Grey coming back. Oh yeah. And yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That yeah. you made sure he wasn't in a position to be able to run to the office and quit on the spot. Yeah, but I think he did anyway, didn't he? I think he ran to the office anyway. He tried to call Jim Shooter on a payphone and didn't have the money on him. Oh, okay. The way I've read it. But then he spent the weekend coming up with all these other proposals for don't bring back Jean, make her sister a mutant, do yeah. this, do that. do And and that Shooter was just like, much like with the Dark Phoenix saga, was just like, no, I'm doing it this way. Yeah. And, you, yeah. you know, it's my way yeah. or the highway. Yeah, I mean, Chris should have had, he should have won those battles. But, you know. We got some great stories out of the fact that he didn't. I am someone who is of the opinion that he was right about X Factor. I think that Wheezy did incredible stuff with those characters in that book. Oh, yeah. but. I would have kept Gene dead. I would have. I mean, I think that that story was brilliant. And there aren't a lot of stories about Gene Grey after it that I think have necessarily made up for how much you lose by bringing her back. No, it's just like history itself. If you think of anyone from Marilyn Monroe to Martin Luther King to anybody that has passed tragically early, their myth becomes exponentially huge yes and so there is it it is a little bit cheap and a little bit you lose a lot by not allowing that mythic thing to to rock to persist yeah yeah let's pivot into long shot i was a media studies student so i love all of the McLuhan and chomsky and all of that that you put you into know this. but you know what's weird is that that is a wikipedia thing that i was studying all those people <laughs> and it's not true you know I really no i didn't go and it's probably comes out of i i was do i was when i'm interviewed about the new mutants summer special where uh which is a crazy story, yeah. Like, totally crazy story. They go to an alternate universe where there is ma- a character manufacturing consent, and at the end of the book, I thank uh, Marshall McLuhan and uh, Noam Chomsky. It's that is the that is the story that was influenced by them. Not Mojo talks about the global village in Longshot, so I had kind of thought that yeah, maybe no, that, it's not you know. your fault. It's probably my fault. <laughs> I, I think in some interview I talked about going to Columbia University and studying all these guys and and then writing the new mutant summer special. But when I was when I when me and Arthur came up with Longshot, that was like 
a decade before I went to Columbia University and studied all those guys. So Mojo did not come out of media analysis. It was just, it was sort of, um, you know, I don't even, I don't know where he came from. I have no idea where he came from. That's what I was about to ask. I mean, do you have any, it's almost like network, the whole setup, right? You even have, there's the sort of beleaguered business guy who's, having fights with his wife and hates the television and tries to kill himself and then long shot so lucky that he can't it's sort of the idea of tv creating this world that isn't real and mojo kind of being a representation of the power that it has the anti-nature as dr strange calls it well i think that um that mojo was a reaction to everybody being watching tv all the time you know, and he he just became someone who decided that he could enslave an entire population through their television viewing, you know, in this sort of gladiator style reality mm-hmm. TV thing that was really uh, just from what was going on in the 80s more than anything later on. And uh, it's it's also, again, it's like me and Arthur decided to do this comic Arthur sent me pages and pages of stuff he wanted to draw because I told him, let's, you know, he likes monsters. Let's fill it with monsters. And I I don't remember, but I have a feeling that I, I sort of think that maybe Spiral was just one of the monsters that he drew. I was going to ask about her. She's so great. Where did I mean, she come I think from? It was just kind of like, okay, her, and she has six arms. So what if she danced and could open you know, dimensions. And therefore, <laughs> that's how Mojo gets back and forth. And there's even somewhere I have um, Arthur's first drawing of Longshot. He did this beautiful pen and ink drawing of Longshot. And, and then he wrote all the things that he wanted the series to be about. And in that, he says he'd like it to be like about slavery and racism and, you know, and I think so, so. I think a lot of Arthur's thoughts of things that he wanted to explore and drawing monsters. So it was the two of us taking our weird interests as young, really young kids, really. Yeah. And, you know, Arthur also, also liked drawing toys and Gumby. And like, there's a lot of stuff in the comic that he just put in there because he wanted to draw it, you know? <laughs> like, there's certainly nothing in the plot that says, and then Gumby runs across, and, <laughs> and but there he is. So I think that um, Longshot was very much a re- of a reaction to me not really knowing what a superhero was because I, you know, I, I it wasn't somebody who grew up reading superheroes and thought, well, what if he, what if his power was something that he didn't always have control of? Because, mm-hmm. you know, we explored the idea that he was lucky, but that his luck fell apart if he wasn't trying to be lucky for a good reason, you know. And so it um, and then the story sort of like the one you mentioned, the guy watching TV. I mean, that was kind of what would it be like to hang out with one of these heroes? Right. And honestly, that character Jinx just thought, what a drag to hang out with someone who is so awesome is not that much fun for for this guy jinx who really just wants to kill himself you know <laughs> yeah i mean i find the ricochet rita character really captivating as well 
you probably didn't intend it because you've talked about how Spiral is more of an Art Adams like doodle or that turned yes. into something bigger. But Fabian Nicieza later established that in a time paradox, Spiral was Rita and that basically Mojo had had Spiral torture Rita into becoming Spiral. Had you heard about that? That never made any sense to me because, <laughs> well, for one thing, Arthur decided to base Ricochet Rita on me, you know? Yes, she looks just like you. Which was very sweet of him. And she, she, the idea behind Ricochet Rita was that she was an awesomely empowered human, not a mm-hmm. superhero, just, a, and so in a weird way, I didn't understand why anyone would want to kill an empowered human because how many empowered females did we have at Marvel Comics at the time? Well, this is why I don't like what happened to Maddie Pryor, yeah, Annie. It's sort, she- of like, <laughs> it's sort of like, why? I mean, I haven't read the story that says she was not an empowered female. Well, she was. It's just that she she becomes this other thing and it's tragic. I, I think it added a lot of interest to Spiral as a character and Rita hadn't been used in a very long time. Yeah. So it yeah. made sense. But I was just curious if that... I mean, did you have more plans for Longshot? Was there more well, you yeah, wanted to do? Was, um, Arthur and I had mapped out a graphic novel that we were going to do. And uh, and then I think I started writing Daredevil and he started I I started putting him on my books. You know, I think, you know, him and Chris were doing a lot of stuff together. And I think Chris, uh, you know, Arthur got so busy doing the X-Men stuff and I got so busy doing Daredevil that we never finished the graphic novel. But Mm. somewhere he has it all laid out. He has the whole story. Uh, in thumbnails. I would love to see that. That would just be an incredible thing to look at. You know, in in a sense, I don't remember what that graphic novel is, and I don't think I even still have a copy of whatever the plot was, but I think that some of my favorite stuff that I always wanted to do again was the relationship between Mojo and his major domo. I love the major domo. Talk about the major domo. The major domo is obviously a queen, you know? Yeah, a flaming, screaming queen. He's a flaming, screaming queen. And there is an implication that Mojo is possibly also a flaming. Yeah, they're a couple, kind of, is sort of the vibe. Yeah. And so my feeling at the time, obviously, because I had a lot of gay friends at the time, were that um, that this was a this was a gay couple Mojo and that's Major so funny Domo. and so that's how I wrote them and I don't think anyone noticed at the time maybe not at the time but I think it's something we've seen more of since whenever those characters do pop up yeah. there's a really great new twist on Mojo that's happening in Leah Williams's X Factor book where the world of the Mojoverse has almost evolved now into being about streaming content and the internet. Yeah, that's because correct. it's kept up with the times yeah, on Earth. Yeah, because that was the, his reality TV megalomania was pre-internet. No, yeah. I, and I didn't even I didn't mean to diss Fabian's story either. I'm sure if I read it, I'd like it. Oh, no, I'm sure you would, too. I, I just was curious. I think it's fine that people take uh, the, me and Arthur's toys and rip them to shreds and rebuild them. That's, that's part of the the fun of comics. Of the ongoing world. Yeah, yeah. you can't get mad at, um, at, at any story that comes. But I did really, really think that 
spirals incredible uber bitch nature and major domo's snark the two of them really were the dominant they dominated mojo and kept him in control yeah because he can't really think straight no and so they took this completely insane babbling but brilliant creature and completely controlled him and were nasty to him and it to me that triangle was in the interesting triangle was spiral major domo and mojo and you know it's funny i get emails now where people are like you know mojo's really like trump you know mhm i mean he was a very prescient character he's blithering insane narcissist you know king baby monster and yet he had all this you know evil talent but i loved major domo constantly sticking a needle in it needling him yeah and uh, and spiral too i mean in some ways that triangle is more interesting to me than the whole rest of the series <laughs> x men x men Mojo, exemplar of the Spineless Ones, ruler of the dimension called Mojo World, the Mojo Verse, or the Wild Ways, is a classic X-Men villain much stranger than their typical rogue mutant or bigoted human foes. Created by writer Anne Nascenti and artist Art Adams for the 1985 miniseries Longshot, Mojo is an extra-dimensional alien despot and slaver, ruling over a world shaped by television. Intended to serve as a villain for Doctor Strange, Mojo quickly became folded into X-Men lore instead, alongside his nemesis, the hero Longshot, and his attendants, the time-dancing six-armed sorceress Spiral, and the long-suffering Chatelaine known only as Major Domo. The Longshot miniseries is a biting social satire about the growing influence of television in America, and eerily predicts the technological advancements of decades to come. The title character is a handsome but androgynous amnesiac with preternatural luck, who has arrived on Earth through a dimensional portal pursued by demonic entities. Longshot and the so-called demons are trapped when the portal seals behind them, and over the course of the miniseries, the reader learns Longshot led a slave rebellion on Mojo World and had his memory erased in retaliation. Mojo is introduced as a mad king, a creature of pure ego and entitlement who demands to be entertained at all times. Unable to walk as one of the spineless ones, Mojo is carried around on a mechanical litter that resembles a spider's legs. Major Domo and Spiral do their best to keep him on task, but he's too insane to remember his own directives for very long. As the miniseries unfolds over six issues, the reader learns the backstory of the Mojoverse. The native species was driven insane by an interdimensional event in which television signals from Earth penetrated their reality and were scattered through their timeline. The species failed to evolve culturally very much due to their inability to walk or sit upright, as they were born without spines. But the inventor Arise created mechanical exoskeletons to allow bipedal movement. A faction that refused the exoskeletons called themselves the Spineless Ones, and eventually took power over the entire dimension. Arise created a slave race for them based on the nightmares, television signals from Earth, that so tormented them. These slaves were forced to act as performers in very real wars, living and dying for the endless entertainment of their masters. Before he was banished for refusing to create weapons, Arise secretly implanted the slave race with the seeds of rebellion. Longshot, a particularly special slave, a mutant of his species, one might say, has particularly strong willpower. Mojo follows Longshot to Earth with the help of Spiral's magic, and his mere presence becomes a force of anti-nature, living things warp, decay, and die in his presence. Delighted to discover this new world full of potential slaves, Mojo begins establishing a base of power. He kidnaps Longshot's friend, the stunt woman Ricochet Rita, and ties her to the prow of his interdimensional ship. 
forcing her to behold the full scope of the multiverse. Rita is left catatonic, only brought back to her senses through the intervention of Doctor Strange. Ultimately, Longshot manages to banish Mojo and Spiral back to Mojo World. He follows after, determined to liberate his fellow slaves from the Spineless Ones once and for all, and Rita, who has fallen in love with him, decides to go with him. Thus ends the Longshot miniseries, to which a sequel never manifested. Mojo next appears as the primary antagonist in 1986's New Mutants Annual No. 2 by Chris Claremont and Alan Davis, the first American comics appearance of the Captain Britain character Betsy Braddock. Mojo and Spiral kidnap telepath Betsy from her friend Allison Double's home in Switzerland, and brainwash her into becoming the Psylocke, a malevolent servant and the star of one of Mojo World's endless television shows. As Betsy was blinded in combat by the villain Slaymaster, Mojo and Spiral outfit her with new bionic eyes. Though she's rescued by her brother Captain Britain and the New Mutants, ultimately becoming a member of the X-Men, Betsy remains unaware that her bionic eyes are secretly cameras transmitting the X-Men's adventures to Mojo for use in his programming. Later that year, in X-Men Annual No. 10, Mojo decides the X-Men need a little spicing up in order to improve his ratings, so he sends Longshot, again brainwashed into amnesia, to Earth, where he becomes a member of the team. Mojo uses Spiral's magic to cause the X-Men to begin de-aging, and while the team manages to defeat him and reverse the spell, he's thrilled with the rating spike back on Mojo World. Spiral is left behind on Earth, where she becomes a member of Mystique's group Freedom Force. Two years later, in 1988's X-Men Annual No. 12, Mojo is furious because of the death of the X-Men in the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants, which has abruptly cancelled his show. We see that Ricochet Rita is his prisoner, and she suggests he find replacements. Mojo begins creating alternate X-Men, rejecting each iteration until he creates the X-Babies, toddler versions of the characters who are an instant ratings hit. The X-Babies escape with Rita, who becomes their guardian. Around the same time, in the one-shot Excalibur the Sword is drawn, Mojo's servants the Warwolves, intelligent parasitic animals, are dispatched to track down Rachel Summers, who was briefly enslaved by Spiral before managing to escape. A proposed Phoenix miniseries depicting Rachel's ordeal in Mojo World never came to fruition. Mojo returns in 1989's Uncanny X-Men 256, The Key That Breaks the Lock, where he and Spiral supervise the transformation of Betsy Braddock into an Asian woman. Don't worry about it. While this issue presents them as mere figments of Betsy's imagination during her transformation and brainwashing by the assassins called The Hand, later retcon stories would establish Mojo and Spiral's literal involvement, including Spiral's role in swapping Betsy's mind with that of the Japanese assassin Kanon. Mojo then tangles with Excalibur in the one-shot Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, drawn by his co-creator Art Adams. Shortly thereafter, Chris Claremont departed from the X-Men franchise after 16 years, and Longshot and his love interest Dazzler were quickly written out of the books. They depart for Mojo World to finally lead that slave rebellion, and the setting becomes largely a background element in the 90s, though Mojo would pop up occasionally to cause trouble for the X-Men and their allies. In 1992's X-Men 10 by Scott Lobdell, Mojo kidnaps the X-Men to Mojo World and forces them to participate in a twisted version of the Wizard of Oz. After he's apparently killed by Longshot, Mojo's replaced for a time by a sexy clone of himself called Mojo 2, the sequel, which is, honestly, very funny. Mojo 2 turns out to be evil as well, though, and is eventually deposed by the original. When Mojo creates new X-Baby versions of the villains from the Age of Apocalypse crossover, he loses control of them and much of Mojo World is destroyed. Dazzler escapes to tell the X-Men what happened, and that's the last we hear of Mojo for a bit. When he turns up in the book Exiles, about dimension-hopping mutants fixing temporal anomalies, we see strong evidence that there is only one Mojo World for the entire multiverse. Do not worry about that, the metaphysics are inconsistent. Mojo and Spiral are later two of the supervillain geniuses Hank McCoy consults when he's trying to reverse the decimation after House of M. 
In the 2009 miniseries Astonishing Tales Mojo World by Jonathan Hickman, Mojo kidnaps Cannonball and Sunspot and forces them to star in his movies, but they eventually escape. Peter David's X-Factor investigations don't worry about it. It uh, turns out that the X-Men's ally from Mojo World, the warrior Shatterstar, is actually Longshot and Dazzler's long-lost, time-displaced son. Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers don't worry about it. The team gets... No, just don't worry about it. In Cy Spurrier's run on X-Force, Mojo brainwashes Domino for a bit, and that book's fun. Mojo is the principal antagonist of the 2017 event Mojo Worldwide, a crossover between Cullen Bunn's X-Men Blue and Mark Guggenheim's X-Men Gold. In an effort to improve flagging ratings, Mojo attacks New York City and forces the X-Men to reenact past adventures. Magneto and Polaris combine their electromagnetic powers to shut down Mojo's network, and he and his followers begin scheming to create a new cable news channel on Earth. After the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by Jonathan Hickman, Mojo returns in a new volume of X-Factor by writer Leah Williams and artist David Balzeon. Mojo World has adapted alongside Earth and is now focused on internet streaming content. Characters like Shatterstar have been pressed into service as Bloodsport gladiators for the instant gratification of fans subscribing to their channels, and the newest iteration of X-Factor Investigations promises to liberate them. Surely Mojo and his writer's room will have something to say about that. X-Men, X-Men. I remember that the first three issues, maybe even to the fourth issue, were really fun. But, you know, Arthur and I had developed this Bible, like this metaphysics for Mojo's world. You know, who created, you know, who created those humanoid things out of mythology or whatever. And I think that as we got to issue four or even five, we realized that we hadn't put any of that stuff in the comic yet or not much of it. So we crammed it all in the last two issues. Mm -hmm. And therefore the last two issues are really boring because it's like, blah, see, I love them. I think they're great. Well, it's just a little too much like blah, 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 blah. Now here's what it all means. And here's how it happened. And here's a rise. And he created (laughs) blah, 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 blah. And in hindsight, you know, we were literally trying to make up for the fact that we had goofed around too much in the first four issues and left everything for the end. And then we didn't have enough room for it. As a Claremont fan, I love a page that's all just word bubbles. So (laughs) I love those two issues. (laughs) But um, in a weird way, uh, me as a more mature writer would have said, take this major domo spiral mojo triangle, develop that more and have some kickers built in about that and forget the whole backstory, you know, and that was regret. I always regretted that I never got to do another major Delmo story. Yeah, I would have liked to read that. That's probably a good moment to go into some of the questions that were sent in. Sure. Dallas Taylor writes, hi, Connor, huge fan of the pod. It's been such a fun part of my life over the last few months. My question for Anne revolves around her work at Marvel broadly. Did she feel that working on a book like Daredevil was significantly different from working on the X-Men? Were there projects that had more supervision than others from the higher-ups? And what story arc from any of her time at Marvel does she feel was her best? Well, nobody really messed with my work. I mean, back then you didn't have this whole hierarchy of multiple people that you had to answer to because the IP wasn't valuable. The intellectual property rights underlying these Marvel characters, there were no movies yet. You know, I think there was maybe one that didn't do well, you know, or there was the Mm -hmm. TV show or 
there was some beginning stuff. The Dazzler project didn't happen. The Hulk TV show was around, but otherwise there weren't that many. It wasn't valuable IP. And so you didn't have what you have now, which is a, you know, burgeoning multi-million dollar movie studio that's making sure that characters are what they call on model or canon, you know, and so there's a lot of a, a lot more restrictions as to what you can do. I did, um, you know, it was all, it was just you and your editor. It was from, with all the X-Men stories, it was just me and me and Wheezy and Chris. And for all of my Daredevil stories, it was just me and Ralph Macchio and uh, John Romita Jr. I mean, you have to re- constantly remember the artist involved. Like if John and John and I would talk through stories and, if John suddenly said, I want to draw this, I put it in the story. If he said, I right. want to draw this, if he's like, I don't want to draw that, it didn't go in the story. So the the, uh, the artist was always like an equal collaborator. Mm-hmm. Like that is something that is... Um, a lot of fans don't recognize that. And it's so you know, important to the medium. To have talked about a lot more because, yes, I write the stories. Yes, John draws them. But somewhere in between there in this sort of mind meld between me and John Romita Jr., we were co-storytellers. And, you know, so the art is celebrated and the writer is given credit for the story, but actually there's this third entity that Mm -hmm. is the mind meld that is really the storyteller. Me and John Bolton told very different stories. We told surrealist, weird stories, very different from me and Arthur Adams, where we were just very enthusiastic, like a couple of puppy dogs getting to play our instruments the first time, you know? And then uh, John Romita Jr. was a very, very stylish guy. He had like an an elegance and a grace to him. And he he really, um, he added something to the stories that was completely different from... So I think that's another thing that is important is how much the artists contributed to the stories, especially fight scenes. You know, that was like, you always sort of bow down and if you orchestrate a fight and an artist wants to do it a completely different way, they get to do whatever they want. They have to draw it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Alan Trussler writes, Hi, Connor and Annie. Over your career in comics, Annie, you've written amazing interpretations of pre-existing characters like Daredevil, as well as creating unique new characters like Mojo and Typhoid Mary. Which approach did you prefer, if at all, creating inventive new characters or finding your own spin on currently existing ones? Thanks for coming on this podcast. I loved the seeds. All the best, Alan. Oh, thank you very much, Alan. Um, It's I mean, it, it also, the other person's question before that I forgot to answer about which do you <laughs> like best, it's like, you can't choose between your babies, you know? Right. And you can't choose between, I loved everybody I ever collaborated with, you know? It's sort of like doing typhoid with John Van Fleet was a blast. Doing typhoid with John Romita Jr. was a blast. You know, every collaboration you have, you approach it's so much fun that it's very hard to choose what you liked the best. And uh, what was what was the question he asked then? It was Did you prefer creating characters or writing characters with a history? Oh, so creating characters is obviously a lot more work. It's and it's a lot more personal. And you have you're turning your own obsessions and your own you're turning your mind inside out and spilling it on a page. And you know. 
you can be judged for that. <laughs> Whereas if you're doing a story about a already existing character, that character has your back. That character has stories going back 60, 70 years. Has fans, has a, you know, has yeah. a foundation. And so you, you kind of um, have to respect what went before you. You have to ex respect who that character is. And so it's a different kind of creativity, but the creativity, you, maybe you could compare it to like sampling and music, Yeah. you know, or, or people that want to riff on very specifically on things that went before um, is very different than an original creation, which is why Ruby Falls and the Seeds has been very scary because that's there's no it's not even a world that existed before it's all completely from your head yeah no world that existed no superhero that has our back you know so david aha and i you know having created that whole thing together it's a gorgeous book speaking of artists as collaborators david aha does incredible stuff in that that's book. really a, that's really another mind meld you know every inch of that comic every panel every balance of every rhythm in that comic was a mind meld super you know storytelling collaboration and Flavia Biondi and that is a comic that's about a queer couple you know one of the the girls and the couple is kind of she's a polygamist you know she she kind of mm -hmm. triangle between you know she meets a guy and it almost breaks up her relationship with her girlfriend and and that that a lot of that just came from Flavia Biondi is an extraordinary actress. If you want to say that an artist can be an actress, her characters are great actors. I don't know mm -hmm. how else I can put it, but her characters have a, a repertoire of mannerisms and body language that only she can do that comes out of Flavia Biondi. Nobody else does what she does. Her way of looking at the world impacted on Ruby Falls and David Aha's way of looking at the world and the way that he breaks down stories into little snippets and chapters. Yeah. And that had a huge impact on that story. So again, it's just really trying to get people to remember that the story is also written by the artist mm -hmm. you know they're just writing it they're writing it in lot in uh, images so did that answer the question yeah i think uh, so <laughs> colby glunt uh, writes hey ann and connor i'm reading long shot right now for the first time and having a blast and you worked as an editor for a long time and i was wondering if there were any times you had to nick something you were enjoying but knew wouldn't work particularly during your time working on the x-men well, again, it's like, I don't remember. That was your talk. <laughs> you, you guys right. are talking 30, 40 years ago. But there is one story that I tell, and I've told it before, and I don't even know. The Xavier story, yeah, right? Yeah. Me and Chris were at lunch, and we were talking about the Hellfire Club and, you know, different characters going to the Hellfire Club undercover, maybe, so they got to wear, like, scanty, fun outfits. and. There was a moment when Chris and I talked about um, Professor Xavier dressing in drag. And I remember thinking, I remember us having a conversation about how he dignified he was and maybe we shouldn't have him walking in stiletto heels. And in hindsight, <laughs> honestly, I don't think I should have nixed that story. 
It would have been fun. It would have been fun. I should have let Chris do it. So sometimes even your instincts as an editor to rein someone in, in hindsight, you should have really just let them do whatever they wanted. So sorry, Chris. Yeah. Well, and sorry, Charles, because I bet he would have looked fantastic. He would have looked great. You know, I guess it was a period when he wasn't in his wheelchair, perhaps. No, he was walking at the time for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Gladstone writes, I could gush about how much Anna Senti's work means to me, but really we know the impact she's had on Marvel, not just the X universe. So thank you, Anne, for writing such bizarre and outlandish ideas into the world and the world has eaten them up. When it comes to Mojo, I always thought it was incredible that the whole idea predated the concept of reality television, a world where anyone and anything could be televised for entertainment without having to be scripted, but rather produced for extra drama. Was Anne just brilliant at imagining where TV and our need for content would naturally evolve, or was it a total fluke to have arrived at what modern reality TV would become? Do you have any thoughts on that? It is a very prescient book. I have a feeling it was a total fluke, but, um, you know, again, it's like it could it probably me, Arthur Adams and, and Louise Jones, Wheezy Simonson, who was the editor. And she right. was like a huge, important component to this book because she really encouraged me and Arthur to go nuts. And we were probably at lunch and we were probably talking. And you, the, the, I mean, for all I know, Wheezy said something or <laughs> said something. I do not remember how all that reality TV stuff ended up in the comic, other than to say, me, Wheezy, and Arthur must have, you know, had an idea. You know, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. And I don't want to take credit for everything because it is equally Arthur. And, you know, I keep talking about, the artist is also a writer of the and in their storytelling contribution, but the editor too. It's like, you know, Wheezy was always full of ideas. She was a writer. She was a creator. She was always full of ideas. And so it's, it's hard to figure out what went into long shot that was me and what was Wheezy and what was Arthur. Mm -hmm. Probably a lot of Arthur. It does. I mean, visually, it's all just so yeah. fascinating. Pame Bravo writes, Hi, Connor. I love the podcast. When you announced Anne Nascenti was going to be a guest, I got so excited because her Longshot book is one of my favorite miniseries. In the prologue to it, she describes Longshot as a glowing character between so many dark characters in the comic industry. And during his series, we see Longshot being naive, but pure of heart and heroic. Reading the book feels, as she says, like a fresh insight, the song that lightens your step. But she also created Mojo World, which is such a fascinating place to explore many ideas about media and its effect and influence on people, pop culture, and consumerism. How different would Mojo World be if you created it now? I mean, I think that because we're talking about exploitation and addiction, it would be similar because we're all mm -hmm. now addicted to the internet. I am guilty as anyone else of being like, you know, finding myself falling through rabbit holes for days and not even knowing how I can get out, you know? So yeah, the, the, the idea of wanting to become passive and allow entertainment to just blot out the reality of life is something that Mojo was trying to exploit, which was a tendency in human beings. Because at the time, you have to remember at the time, people were talking about how people were addicted to plain old TV shows. And there weren't even a lot of TV shows yet. Right. You know, that people were like, uh, you know, running home to watch this or that TV show. So uh, 
I, I don't know. I think it would be a fascinating. I mean, maybe somebody right now is coming up with a mojo story, but for the Internet age. Yeah. Leah Williams is doing it in X Factor and it's really great. I'm excited oh, to see where she goes with it. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that's great. And it's it should be written by young people who are dealing with their own feelings of identity loss and addiction to alternate realities that now alternate reality back in the 80s was a concept that's very different now that we have the internet where there's like literally alternate. But the other thing we haven't talked about was how just like Ricochet Rita was supposed to be a super empowered female at a time when there weren't a lot of super empowered humans in comics. Longshot was supposed to be uh, a bit androgynous and beautiful, obviously. The, you know, I remember us thinking that he was just so pretty you could barely look at him, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, there is a certain, there was a certain androgyny to the to Longshot, his looks. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of a David Bowie aesthetic. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And Arthur had an interest in some musician. He wanted to give him a mullet, you know? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And I had the, the story of the eye was just literally I knew a one eyed cat that I used to glow at night and decided to give Lockshot a glowing eye. And now they're like, like all these different characters with glowing eyeballs. Yeah. Cable has one, too. Yeah. But it was Longshot who did it first. Yeah. Well, I guess that because I think what happened was that it was so much fun to have a character with a glowing eye. But Longshot was kind of a little bit of a wimp, you know. I mean, he was very sensitive. He was androgynous. He wasn't didn't quite fit the Marvel mode of a superpowered. So Shatterstar and Cable were created to like take advantage of the glowing eye, but actually have it be like you know more of a butcher. He man, you know. Of course, now Shatterstar is queer. So oh, you know it all. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. (laughs) Yeah. He and Richter are, uh, well, on and off, but they've been, oh. he's actually trapped in the Mojo world right now and they have to go rescue him. That's the plot in oh, uh, Leah okay. Williams' well, book. Nice. So. I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that Longshot's androgyny is not dead. Yeah. Well, and also in another one of those time travel things, it turns out that Shatterstar is Longshot and Dazzler's son. Who okay, got, I think somebody you know. told me that. So, I would love a story with all three of them because I think the idea of like Shatterstar, who's now this bisexual character, his mother being this mutant pop star, I think is very funny (laughs) as an idea. Like talk about the Pyramid Club, right? Yeah, the Pyramid Club. Which is now closing permanently because of COVID. That's like a devastating, uh, they just announced that that last week. Really? So much history there. They should make it a landmark, honestly. It's one of those historic, like Stonewall, they should really do that. Well, maybe something like that will happen. Maybe. Levi Tompkins asks about Mojo being presented as sort of this obese character and how that can sometimes be shorthand for, for villainy. Is that one of those sensitivity things you might change if you went no, back? No, or I think, that, um, I think that it was more a comment on gluttony. The fact that he was, he was a gluttonous, greedy character. I mean, I remember those scenes where, you know, he always wanted to have the whole world reflect his face and yes. he would tell everyone to put his face. I mean, it was really more. And he thought he was beautiful. And he thought he was beautiful. So it more, it wasn't some kind of um, me and Arthur doing some kind of like large body any more than the chair that he's in was right. some kind of 
intent on our part to do a disability story disability or like story. That, right? We weren't even thinking about any of that. We just wanted him to be gluttonous, grief, excess, excess. And um, the chair was literally from something that still makes no sense, but it was the idea that he thought, you know, having a spine which is a metaphor for having ethics and morals and all that. Right, made you weak and slave-like. Some kind of weakness, and so he didn't even want to stand upright. It was like, yeah. So I don't think that we thought it out that well, and I don't think we were thinking, oh, let's do, you know, something. We just were, you know, going nuts as kids, creating characters without thinking very hard about it. Yeah. You know? Zach Rabaroff writes, Hi, Connor and Ms. Nascenti. Let me say what a thrill it is to have such an extraordinary writer on the show. So extraordinary, in fact, that there's no way I'm going to just faux casually put myself on a first name basis. So, Ms. Nascenti, you've told the story about how you first saw a vague ad for a job opportunity at Marvel and assumed, based on ambiguous phrasing, that it was probably a pornographic magazine. You went on to work as Chris Claremont's editor for five years. Looking back, do you think you would have edited more bondage stories at Marvel or at the porno magazine? That's a very funny question. Um, I don't know, you know? Yeah. (laughs) More seriously, many of the comics you worked on at Marvel, both as an editor and as a writer, dealt far more frankly and openly with sexuality than other mass market titles at the time. I'm thinking not only of the Claremont X-Men, but of your own Typhoid Mary stories in Daredevil and many of your X-Men short stories in Classic X-Men, which dealt unabashedly, although often ambivalently, with eroticism between characters. Do you recall what motivated you to work those themes into your stories at the time? And do you recall ever getting pushback about it, either from your own colleagues at Marvel or from readers or concerned parents? Speaking from your perspective now, what do you see as the role of sex and violence and the way they intertwine in superhero stories? I mean, we never got any pushback from anywhere. You know, that was... uh... That's amazing to think about now when everybody can... There's so much access now because of the internet. Everybody can push back as much as they want. Yeah, maybe people were pushing back in their brains, but not like... They didn't have any (laughs) way to tell us how much they hated us. You know, I I just uh, wanted to explore sexuality because Marvel felt to me like a very male fantasy, male-oriented kind of superhero stories. Even though, you know, the origins of a lot of the superhero narratives, because they were created by Jewish creators, Mm -hmm. were very different. I mean, Jack Kirby's Captain America was definitely a character that was meant to fight anti-Semitism and punch Hitler in the face. So the original empowerment of Superman and Spider-Man and Captain America came from Jewish creators that could not get work in advertising and we're in the sort of like second secondary art career of comics at the time yeah but for some reason when i entered the field in the 80s they were very much about male power fantasies and i wanted to do a female power fantasy you know and i think you did yeah with typhoid mary and so you know i mean it's so again it was the work of someone who was young and naive me and you know i do remember my boyfriend armand at the time used to have a blast talking story with me so i think it also came out of like my relationship at the time like i said we were you know part of the milieu of the 80s new york downtown art performance scene and i'm sure i was just grabbing everything i saw and putting it into the comic and um 
you know, you could do a whole critique that Typhoid Mary is a, not a very feminist character, you know? And I'm sure people have, I'm yeah. Sure people but have, yeah. Sure. There are also people who find her very empowering. And I think that yeah. when you're writing any kind of, I mean, speaking as a gay person, as a Jewish person, as all, you know, any of those things, like when you're writing about a minority experience or a marginalized experience and the experience of women, even though they're not a minority is obviously a marginalized experience. Yes. It's a marginalized experience. There's never going to be something that pleases every member of that group. Right. So it's about writing your conscience and your thoughts. I would think. And I don't think that you should ever really, you should, you should create what you create, do what you do. And then kind of, if there's any blowback, deal with it. Like I am now 40 years later. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just take the hit, take the hit later. Okay, I could have been more sensitive here. This, 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 this. I should have let Chris do that Xavier bondage stiletto story, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing is it's always good to just... I think that that's exactly right. I, I'm a literary agent. I always tell my clients, I'm like, you have to get the work out there and then yes. see how people react to it. If you start thinking about what you're doing too much, you're no, going to start, yeah. you're going to get in the way of the work. No, and I also think that this current climate of scrutinizing and blowback, it's not worth it if voices are being crippled out of fear. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, if I had to do it over and I was writing those stories in the age of the internet where everyone could slam you for everything you did the deck next day, I probably would have like ran screaming from the business, you know? It's hard. I I don't know how creators now who are young in particular manage to keep their heads up on the internet. I think it would be really really difficult. It's brutal. It's so brutal. I think when I came back to the industry and did Catwoman for DC, Mm -hmm. you know, I was kind of like, wow, you know, if people don't like a story, they really tell you. They're going to let you know. (laughs) And my response is like, why don't you read things that you like what Mm -hmm. the what is the point of reading stuff you don't like and screaming about how much you don't like about it because it's like you know if I don't like a particular director or author's work I just don't pick it up again right I think that with these worlds as you've talked about and you talk you've talked about this in interviews about Spider-Woman because at the end of that book Grunwald had you kill her off. I mean, that was the instruction, right? And that you didn't realize until after that happened that the attachment people feel to the characters is often greater than the attachment they feel to any writer. And so I imagine that's part of it, right? Like, If you're someone who's really passionate about Catwoman, you can't not read Catwoman's story because you want to know what she's up to. So I think it's it's tricky for people, you know? And I think that what the surprising thing for me writing Catwoman is that I had a lot of um, female fans. Like when I'd go to a convention, I'd have a lot of women coming up to me who really liked Catwoman. Yeah. You know, so to me, it was like, okay, I guess I was writing for the women who read comics. Which is cool, right? Thing, you know, and <laughs> yeah. I remember I had this one guy who used to write me all the time and tell me my stories were just like, my Catwoman stories are just terrible. And I remember asking him, like, well, who's Catwoman to you? And he said, well, obviously she's a prostitute. Well, that's the Frank Miller thing. Yeah, and I was like, you know, no, I'm not going to write that particular Catwoman 
for you because you think that's Catwoman. Yeah, and it's not like he wants to see a sensitive portrayal of sex work. He no. thinks it's sexy. He, he thinks, thinks it's, it's hot. Sexy. Yeah, so right. then you kind of start dismantling what exactly is this criticism about, and then you go, oh, okay, you know, I don't even yeah. go there. Teeny Howard, who writes for Marvel now, she said on this podcast once, she's like, you know, a lot of these characters have never been written by a woman at all. And so when a woman gets a hold of them, sometimes the characterization is going to be slightly different from what people are used to because I'm not writing this character in the way that a man would, you know? Not to suggest that all women have the same experience, but it brings a different, it just brings something different. I mean, I think that the way that Wheezy wrote Jean Grey on X Factor is also a testament to that. It was the first time besides a brief, I think, Linda Fight story that any woman had written the character. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting. Final question, and then we'll talk a little bit about the seeds before you have to go. Robert Secundus writes, Dear Connor, I cannot express how overjoyed I am to see that Anne Nascenti is going to be on the podcast. Her Longshot miniseries is one of my favorite comics of all time. What always strikes me about her work is the critical thought about media, art, politics, and culture, as well as engagement with the work of other writers. I'm wondering if she has any advice to new comics writers, particularly those in the superhero genre, along those lines. What aspects of our culture today are the most important things for such writers to examine? What thinkers or books would she recommend as vital reading? I was just reading a book called Priest Daddy by Patricia by Patricia Lockwood. Yes, and I'm completely in love with her writing. And I think that she's just, and I just got her new one that I think is about the portal itself. Yeah, no one is talking about yeah. this, the novel. And I, you know, so I would highly recommend reading, and I haven't read the second one yet, but no one is talking about this, but I would highly recommend reading her. And also, uh, Joanne McNeil wrote a book called Lurking um, that is kind of like the experience of, like, I think that young writers have the benefit of having grown up inside the portal, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas I have a lot, most of my life was pre-internet, you know, so it's, it's to me, those new, I am completely fascinated by what is it like for people to be growing up inside the portal? Meaning your first memories of life have something to do with being online, going down rabbit holes, being in this incredible expansive. And I, I, you know, and so that's why Patricia Lockwood, right? Yeah. Lockwood. Why her, she just completely blew me away. Her writing is just so powerful. And then, You know, I went down a rabbit hole getting obsessed with her writing and watching like every podcast I could find of her. Um, So, you know, I off the top of my head, I would recommend everyone read her. I would love to talk a little bit about The Seeds, your recent project with David Aha. Tell the listeners whatever you'd like to tell them about it, because I think they should go buy it. I loved it. I think that um, the strange thing for me is that I put out two graphic novels in 2020 in a plague year. So it was really a little bit traumatic because Fabio Biondi and I and Karen Berger, our editor, because a lot of this has to do with- Brilliant editor. Berger books. Karen Berger is responsible for Vertigo. Yeah, I mean, that's all her. Yeah, and so when I was over at Marvel writing Daredevil, I was always very impressed that Karen was doing all the Vertigo books at the same time. She was really 
a total fighter for bringing new voices into comics. Today, you know, we need Karen Burgers. We need yeah. people like Karen Burger that says, you have a trans story you want to tell, you have a being lost in the portal story you want to tell, that works with and develops these stories for today. Like Young talent, yeah. marginalized talent, stuff yes. like that. Do you feel, Julia Blunk wrote in to ask this, and I was curious, Karen Burger makes me think of it. Do you feel that the contributions of women, especially women editors in that period, have been sort of downplayed? Because I think a lot of people don't know that all of those X-Men books were edited by a woman. I think people <laughs> don't know about Louise Jones's contributions. I, You know, like, I think it's, it's something people don't know. It's funny if you read Chris's X-Men and think about it for even a minute. Of course women were edited. Of course there were women in the room. It's the best <laughs> women characters anybody had ever seen in a comic yeah. book. Yeah, and that and so it's um I don't know, it's like I guess women are overlooked. I remember somebody I was being interviewed and somebody was telling me there's a documentary called The Men Without Fear. And it's like everybody that ever worked on Daredevil except me, because I'm not <laughs> a man without fear. I'm a female without fear. So of course they couldn't include me in the documentary. That's wild because you wrote one of the most celebrated runs yeah, on the book. It's, that's and so I was like, well, I had never saw this documentary, and then no, they didn't ask me to be in it because I guess it would have wrecked their title, "Men Without Fear." I guess, cheese. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I I think that Marvel did a documentary about the women in comics. Yes, I just saw that. It's great. And you know, it is startling how. Sana Amanat and G. Willow Wilson and Kelly Sue DeConnick. There are extraordinary female talents in comics today. Kelly Thompson, you know, there's so many. You just mentioned someone, Leah. Leah Williams and Teeny Howard in the X office. Yeah, I mean, I will, I will, the fact that today I learned, I will seek out their work because I seek out female comic. I'll email you some, st some yeah, info. Yeah, stuff to get. And so it's, you know, it's people are always asking me, you know, you, you and Wheezy, you were trailblazers. And I'm like, no, the women that are doing stuff today are just as much trailblazer because they're doing things to bring females into comics. They're writing comics like Kelly Sue DeConnick, especially writing comics to empower females. Yeah. Be it her bitch planet or her pretty deadly. I mean, so I think that it's just, it's better like than never, right? That women Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the Seeds is interesting in that respect because it's about a female journalist, yeah. which is a fraught position, obviously. Yeah. She's working also for a female editor yeah. who's very insistent about, you know, pushing... I thought it was interesting in the afterward you talk about how you wrote this all before the fake news alternative facts yes. thing became a narrative, but it's less about that because yeah, there yeah. is a fake news component, but it's more about how we shape narratives and make them real, which is similar to the mojo concept yeah, to go way back, you know? You know, it's funny. I, I, I constantly seem to be repeating myself. All the great artists do. I guess. There are themes. You know, Mojo, yeah, Mojo is there in The Seeds. And also all my animal rights stories from Daredevil, they were all based on... Because the bees dying out is a big part of the post-apocalyptic yes. setting in The Seeds. And it's also very much like I wanted everybody's point of view, not just mine. So you have the pig's point of view. You have the mushroom's right. point of view, the ant's point of view, the bee's point of view. You have... 
because as a journalist, Astra is looking at the world and trying to find the truth, even though she has this editor that's telling her just write what sells. And absolutely, Lola and Race, the alien human affair. Couple that are at the center of yeah, the story. Yeah, it's very much about love the other. Love people that are not like you, please. You know? I found it very hopeful. I mean, it's a very, it's kind of a devastating story because the setting, there's no superheroes, right? It's just like, this is the post-apocalypse yeah. and it sucks here. I found, though, that there was a light in the darkness that I really felt by the end, which is also a very long shot, right? Like, it's a long shot, but you go for it. The idea that you can persevere through something so terrible. But it's also, it was not meant to be, this is the future and it sucks, because everybody keeps acting as they always acted. You know, they go to to How normal they find it is fascinating, yeah. You know, because that's... You know, there is climate change is going on right now. We have flooding, we have fires, but we all still, you know, get dressed up and go to the club, you know, or do whatever we do. So reading it in the pandemic was interesting because I was just sort of, I mean, it is really, I think, auspicious timing for the book to come out because it doesn't feel like it's a story about the pandemic since you wrote it beforehand. Mm -hmm. But it definitely reminds me of, you know, what we all said over the last year, as things were getting really bad, was like, don't let this become normal. Like, don't let it become normal that all these people are dying every day, you know, things like I that. I think in the seeds, I definitely made that mistake. And I meant for it to all just be normal, you know? No, but it is. But like, no, we have to tell ourselves not to let it become normal yeah. because it is so natural for us to just adapt and go, okay, this is the new normal now. And the seeds really does take that to an extreme almost where it's like well we all walk around in gas masks all the time now and yeah you know there's no animal life and this that and the other thing but that's just you know it's life in the big it's city life. we're gonna do what we can and i i also really wanted people to take a look at nature like just there's a reason you know and david is just aha uh-huh, is just so brilliant with this he's brilliant he's doing teeny howard's covers on her new book actually oh, I, okay. I love his okay. work the you know the um the, the look that he gave the pig, the moment the pig realizes it's come to the farmer, mm-hmm. loves him, but is going to kill him and eat him. I mean, David just really had a lot of sensitivity to the nature point of view. And I think that if, if, if you know, we talk about how, the, you know, we just want to plant seeds in people's brains. If people read the seeds and then just look at the bird on their windowsill a little differently, we'll be happy. Well, I can tell you that I did. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. Annie, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was so much fun. Thank you for doing your best to remember these stories from long, long ago. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that conversation that you and Danny Kinney are going to have about Jesse Drake. I'm sure that will be really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get spanked, right? I think the fact that you are so open to admitting when things were, yeah. you know, not perfect, or yeah. I think that that's a really great approach. So I wouldn't be worried if I were you. I think it'll be great. Do you have anything else that you want to plug or tell anybody how to follow you online or any of that? I, I'm not on the internet that much. I'm jealous. <laughs> you know, it's a conscious thing I'm trying to do, but it's Annie Nocenti, my name. Mm-hmm. Not Anne Nocenti, Annie Nocenti on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, but. I'm really boring. I don't really post that much. I just, I just go on to like other people's stuff. You know, that's kind of, and now I'm drawing, I'm drawing, I'm trying to actually, I want to do a little payback to Haiti 
because of that old bad voodoo story and because I have so many friends in Haiti. I mean, I'm just... Yeah, you were there for some time. And I'm so in love with Haitians and their culture. The only successful slave revolution in the history yeah. of the world. So I'm doing drawings and I'm, I want to find a Black artist to work with, of course. I want to do something about really what's going on in Haiti in a very hopeful way because the voodoo in Haiti is profound and fun. I mean, it's sort of the best party you'll ever go to is a voodoo party in Haiti. I've read about it, but I've, I've never been to Haiti myself. You can be anyone you want if you're being ridden by a loa. It really is a transcendent experience, yes, right? It's, it's amazing. And the culture embraces that. So it's something that I hope to do, you know, so we'll see. Well, I will look forward to seeing what you come up with when you get there. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Thank you so much. And, and thank you to your audience for all those smart questions. I will uh, thank <laughs> them, you know, but those X-Men comics mean so much to me and, and meant so much to me as a gay kid growing up. And I know that your sensibility was really important to that. And I'm very grateful because it made me feel seen before I was ready for the world to see me. So Aww. thank you for that. Oh, wonderful. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast, as well as a link to the Cerebro fan Discord. Please come join the conversation, but don't bring any bad vibes. You can support Cerebro on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. The $5 a month tier called the House of Zaladane will give you access immediately to a monthly bonus episode. The first episode should be out now as you hear this, but only available to the House of Z on Patreon. You can email your questions to Cerebro at Cerebrocast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will be a first for Cerebro in that it will spotlight two different characters. Returning guest Alex Abad Santos will help me shatter the illusions of Reagan Wingard and her sister Martinique, the ladies' mastermind. So if you have any questions about Reagan, Martinique, or their creepy dad, feel free to write in. Thank you, as always, for your support. It's such a treat to talk to you all and to hear from you. And until next time, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. <laughs>